Congratulations and welcome back. Um, how you going? How's your week been? Uh, thanks very much for the messages about last week's episode. It's really great to hear that uh, so many people got something from it. Uh, I really enjoyed it. So thanks for the messages that were sent in. Um, this week, what I want to talk about this week is, you know, I've mentioned on here before that what I work at professionally is within advertising and it's within the the innovative experiential interactive end of advertising and what that means is essentially you know when you go to an event and let's say a big fizzy drink brand um have a have a tent and you go in there and there's there's games you can play or there's different things you can experience well it's my job to come up with those ideas and produce those ideas right hopefully that makes sense or you know i make apps and kind of virtual reality and augmented reality that that kind of thing and what it usually means is when i'm in the early stages of building a relationship with a new client i well i bullshit my way through so much so i just pretend i have to really kind of pretend that i know every single new technology that i'm impressed of of the latest gadget the latest tech the latest software and it's not it's not really bullshit because i definitely have the capacity then to go and find out what it is and then find the the right talent to be able to make this job happen right but over the last few years i've really become accustomed to being in in either in pitch meetings or just regular client meetings and just nodding along like i understand what's going on which I know everyone does, right? Everyone does it and probably in all parts of their life. And, but I think within my profession, it's definitely seen as, well, I'm, I'm, I'm in the room because I'm the expert, right? So to, to not know is not, is not a great look. Even if I don't, I will know. So the reason I'm saying this is what this podcast has given me on a, on a personal level is a real, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It has shown me at face value what saying, I don't know, can you tell me what that is? And just admitting you don't know and then asking more about something. So on the macro looking at that, I mean, within all of Irish music, the, I was so close to it for so many years, being Irish, living in Drada, you know, seeing music in the pubs, being at festivals. And you don't ask questions, like silly questions like, what's a jig? I'm sure... There are people out there that have heard the word jig a million times, but don't know what it is. Like when you, if you ask them to define it, would have no idea. And that goes across then all of the little things. So constantly there there are things which I hear, which I kind of I have to ask myself: Do I really understand what that is? So that's the kind of like looking at it from a big picture going in. But then there's other stuff that circle real close to the music, and I haven't a clue. So. It's probably because it's it's outside the the remit of what the podcast looks at. Maybe I don't uh, go after it as much. So today's uh, episode is is a real real example of me not having a clue what a topic is, and then going, you know what? Here, I have an opportunity to open myself up and actually learn a bit. And I have a funny feeling there's going to be a fair few people who are in the boat, in this same boat with me. So today's guest is Shane Lestedo. And Shane is an incredible player 
in the in Irish and Scottish scene, but very well regarded within the Baroque uh, music scene as well, particularly Scottish Baroque music. And the word Baroque for me, I I hear it when it's mentioned within context of art. I it's one of those words that gets thrown around. Like someone might say something something Renaissance, and then I know kind of Baroque is maybe a little bit after it. I really I I don't I didn't know. I've got, got a little bit more knowledge than I did. But my brain has switched on to it. And this conversation, in part, was an opportunity just to to acknowledge that, you know what, crap, I don't know. I really don't know. And I could let this just kind of all slide in and not put myself out there and be embarrassed to say I don't know. Because, you know, it is embarrassing to say you don't know. Anyhow, um, speaking of Shane, so, gr- I mean, great interview coming up. Uh, Shane is so generous with her stories. It's It's a real treat to listen to. But... Shane is also teaching down at the Boxwood Festival, which is happening in Queenscliff again this year, which unfortunately I actually only found out about this week. So I would have mentioned it earlier. Let me just get the dates for you. So, yeah. On the 19th to the 21st of February in Queenscliff in Victoria. So for our international listeners, which there are a lot... I know you're going through crap times and this is probably the last thing you want to hear that there's a festival on and uh, people are actually going to be sitting in sessions and having a good time. More than likely, right? That's going to happen if we can keep the COVID situation the way it is. We went through a mega big, mega big, we went through a really, really long lockdown and intense lockdown in the middle of last year. There was lots of grumpy pants about it back then. We are on the other side of that and we are raping, reaping the benefits of that. So now this is why we can get to, to do things like that. So look, I know it sucks what you're going through right now in different parts of the world in these lockdowns, but there is light at the tunnel and it is worth it to to some extent. I'm sure there's people going, oh, it's not because of this, whatever. We're dealing with uh, a positive here, so I'm going to bring it back to it being positive. 19th to 21st of February it's down in Queenscliff which if you haven't been to Queenscliff already just come down it's gorgeous at the end of the Bellarine Peninsula a very old town where the festival is held is in a great old building then there's a couple of uh, extra gorgeous buildings around the village that there's workshops in and then there's a concert in the town hall all of these details will be on Boxwood's website at boxwood.org or check out their Facebook as well for updates because I know there's an online component that's happening as well. It's not on the website as I'm recording this, but it probably will be by the time I release it. So that's, uh, yeah, boxwood.org. And you've got Morchine um, Staunton, who we've had a chat on here. You've got Maggie Carty, who you've had we've had on here as well. You've got Sarah Wade, who we've had on here. Andy Rigby. Shane, as I said, and there's other people there too, which I'm sure I'm forgetting, but all of those details are going to be on the website. Right, that was a bit of a rambly intro. I think let's just get straight into the um, the conversation. Look, very quickly, Patreon, we need support. We Actually, we really, really need support at the moment. So if you think this might be the week or if you're inspired from the previous weeks or inspired by this week, please head over there, patreon.com forward slash Balarney Pilgrims. Right, interview time. Catch you on the other side. Okay. <laughs> on the window. 
Shane Lesty though. Still I pronounced that correct? <laughs> that was perfect. Oh, welcome to the Blarney Pilgrims podcast. What did we just hear? That was so, sensational. Ah, oh, thank you very much. Um, it's a tune called Capricorn Rising, uh, which came off a, an Australian album um, called A Feast of Fiddlers that was produced by Martin, uh, sorry, Marcus Holden. And I just, I loved the title because I'm a Capricorn and learnt the tune and it's become that tune that I always use when I'm testing out a fiddle. So if I pick up someone else's violin and I play it, I'll generally play that. Or if I just, I find myself in some far-flung place, I often play that as well. It's it's uh, accompanied me to the Amazon River, that, that tune. Yeah, wow. <laughs> the, the actual instrument you're playing, is there something different about that to my ear there's something that I can't pick up particularly when you're tuning it just before we we got going um there's nothing um there's nothing particularly unusual you'll you'll hear more unusual things about the other instruments I've brought but um it's an Australian made violin which there aren't you know that many of or less um H.E. Martin I can't remember what the H.E. stands for he was making fiddles in Sydney at the turn of the century and uh, was given to my family when I was about three and stayed under the bed until I was big enough to be able to play it. Wow. Yeah. Was it known that you were going to play I was always marked for that or just my, um, oh, it'll be a good time to pass this on? So I, um, I think it was, it was down to my, my aunt's suggestion to my mum that a fiddle would be a good choice because I think she had played... A portable instrument herself the flute and uh and just knew how important it was to be able to carry it around um but i remember not wanting to take violin lessons and my mum twisted my arm by saying she'd buy me this tiny electronic keyboard and i was like woohoo the keyboard <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> little did i know that 30 years later i'd be a violinist so so you have a an interesting origin story right so you you grew up in bosch new south wales is that right did you say bush? Bush, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, I did. I, I was um, I was born in Bendigo in Victoria, but my parents um, encountered uh, Buddhism when I was just a baby. Um, they'd grown up in Irish Catholic families, and just really, uh, it really resonated with them the idea of um, meditation and living a simpler lifestyle. And mm. so they sold up and um, built a house in a community called Wat Wudadama, which is a, a forest style um, Buddhist monastery in the middle of a, an, a very Australian national park, the uh, Darug National Park. And um, so I spent my childhood there doing homeschooling and without electricity and running water. So I remember distinctly when I left um, just before my 10th birthday and uh, I mean, I hadn't really had any exposure to music point blank like my dad played a little bit of guitar and recorder but you know I didn't know who Michael Jackson was I didn't know who Mozart was uh you know I was listening to sort of radio and tv for the first time as a 10 year old which pretty much blew my mind yeah. <laughs> yeah. so did when you're hearing music around uh what is it a township like what's it called it's a like a village what, what do you call uh, it community. Uh, the community yeah do just is it just that there wasn't that many players around or many instruments around or it just wasn't really part of the the culture of the community um well i mean 
that style monastery it's like a, a sri lankan burmese or thai style buddhist monastery so yeah. in a monastery you generally don't have a lot of music it's just not really? something that's coupled with that style of buddhism you get a little bit of music in tibetan um buddhism but not really in in that um family and so the people that came to live in that community there were a lot of families actually at the time we were there in the 80s um and yeah it would it just wasn't part of our daily lives i mean there was i'm guessing some... it wasn't taboo or anything no not necessarily but um yeah without without entering into you know the whole backstory of what what buddhism is and what buddhist practice is it's um yeah it it's not something that is uh integrated into buddhist culture in the same way that i guess um in a lot of um christian communities you might find a lot more um sort of communal singing with mm -hmm. instrumental um uh, accompaniment and yeah it's just you don't it wasn't part of how that community was set up perhaps in you know an equivalent in sri lanka or burma you would have music making directly outside of the um the sort of the heart of the community area so mm -hmm. it wouldn't feel quite so um isolated but because of its setting in australia we were really isolated mm -hmm. it was it you know, it was this amazing sort of sanctuary, this um, meditation um, sanctuary. But if I, you know, went playing in my backyard, I could walk for two weeks without seeing anyone. So yeah. <laughs> um, there just, you know, wasn't a village next door where people were um, playing sessions or, you know, Although like it sounds a, like a rock perfect. band or whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like a perfect environment to maybe start learning <laughs> you know just traipse off and you're not going to be annoying your, your yeah neighbor. yeah it would have been a good place to sort of practice had i already had some kind of musical training yeah um as it was i came to the violin pretty late by sort of classical standards so i started learning you know just before my 10th birthday is that that's late is it for classical standards? um well i play with a lot of people who started when they were three and four so especially in the Suzuki mm -hmm. um, method, which is how I learned as well. Um, yeah, you so, it, it sort of uh, approaches music learning like a language. So yeah. you're picking up first how to listen and then how to imitate on your instrument. And last of all, you learn how to read. When you teach the minute, is it, you probably teach a mix, but is your teaching based in Suzuki or where, where are you at? I, I pretty much bring everything to the table now with my teaching because um, you have to be an accredited uh, Suzuki teacher to sort of advertise yourself as such. Okay. And because I've had so much experience playing, you know, in folk communities and now early music communities, teaching AMEB style uh, lessons to people that want to do exams, I find that the best approach is just to bring everything that works to that person if that's what they need you know to really sort of tailor lessons as much as possible rather than squeeze your your student into a particular method sure. just because that's how you like teaching yeah it's not about you yeah. <laughs> it's about the student yeah. that makes sense so then when you're 10 where, where were you when you, you were getting a introduction to fiddle music when like when this whole yeah. explosion of yeah. all of these other things you weren't exposed to where was that happening well in the Blue Mountains, so we moved from 
um, Wat Bodhidharma to um, the top of the Blue Mountains to Medlow Bath. And yeah, it was definitely like a, a middle step towards getting back into um, the busyness of, you know, um, <laughs> you know, society, I guess. I mean, what does a 10-year-old <laughs> think when they see Michael Jackson? For the first time, it's more like it's that first moment. That's crazy. Not crazy, you know what yeah, I mean? Like, it's I don't big. know. I mean, there were definitely, um, like, as I said, moments where I just had my mind blown by what I was sort of seeing or hearing or tasting or whatever. Um, but there were also a, a lot of it, kids just take stuff into their stride. So mm-hmm. a lot of it, it was just, it was all so new. It was just, well, that's just what's happening, you know? Yeah. So, but were you kidding the candy store kind of because it must like there's there's taking it in your stride too but i would imagine there's a bit of um well it's a, a youthful drive too because you're like you're inquisitive when you're 10 yeah yeah um well kid in the candy store one of the the, the things that i remember is is the lollies <laughs> oh because that wouldn't have been yeah because we just ate so much rice and vegetables <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just yeah I just ate so many lollies for about two years and then and then haven't really eaten lollies ever since yeah and done (laughs) yeah and what kind of music was was grabbing you at that age um let's see well I I did go out and buy my first album which was Michael Jackson someone had given me some David Bowie which I really liked uh and then yeah through the 90s it was just you know everything that was hitting the charts Nirvana and Porter's head and but then so in terms of the folk music my mum you know she grew up doing Irish and Scottish dancing and she started teaching Scottish country dancing around that time that we moved to the mountains and so uh, she started getting me playing tunes to accompany those Scottish country dance meets uh, along with Chris Duncan who's a fantastic Scottish fiddler from Newcastle and um and so that got me very um firmly like stung by the the folk bug i really loved tunes and by the time i was 15 i was playing with the local folk group the ragamuffins in the blue mountains and actually earning bucks by going and doing gigs and apparently i was you know I was a go-to fiddler in the Blue Mountains because I kept on getting work, so yeah. I was pretty pleased about that. Um, and and yeah, from that moment on, I kind of had two things going. I had, you know, my uh, classical repertoire that I was learning through the Suzuki classes, and then I had this growing sort of folk repertoire. And um, did you have, did you have a, a mentor that was kind of leading you within? within the folk or even like well, you've got your teacher for Suzuki but did you have someone that really kind of took you under their wing um well I've always mentally thanked Chris Duncan and Alistair Fraser for the the teaching that I sort of picked up just here and there like at um folk festivals and workshops and um sort of sporadic classes but where I was living there wasn't anyone that could sort of teach me folk fiddling Um, so it was really through learning from cassettes and recordings and um, probably my biggest influence at that age was Martin Hayes I have to say like he was just um, it was just a sound that I adored Uh, and also um, 
oh, I'm not going to be able to remember all the names of the groups um, off the top of my head. Um, I'll say them as they come back to me, but there are a couple of groups coming out of Ireland through the sort of late 90s that just had such an awesome sound. And because it was the age of like everyone buying albums and like um, really listening to a full album mm -hmm. as an album, you know, I mean, I missed the sort of the vinyl age, but I still got it through CDs and really, you know, playing them until they were so scratched up that mm -hmm. literally, you know, you couldn't play them anymore. And that's how I learned my tunes in the in the beginning. Where were you getting them from? Uh, yeah, there was a little bit of a sort of a underground trade through folkies in the Love it. I, yeah in the Blue Mountains. Um, there was a, a small session scene, um, and but I had to wait, you know, until I was about sixteen to be allowed to actually go and hang out with the session mm -hmm. people in the bar because you know there's it's not quite as um, family friendly as it is in in Ireland um but when I was doing a gig you know I was allowed into the bar yeah. just by being part of the crew kind of thing is there much of a connection between um Blue Mountains and Sydney like I used to live in Sydney for a while I'd go up to Blue Mountains for like a weekend or something because it's close but is it a thing where you felt like you were part of the Sydney music not scene at not at all right. not at all no complete separation like there's this awesome piece of graffiti that used to um, adorn the side of the highway going down um, from Blacksland uh, between the Blacksland area and Emu Plains like where it starts to sort of flatten off once you get off the mountain and it and it's like it's all downhill from here <laughs> you know on this massive downhill piece of highway and that's how the sort of Blue Mountains folk kind of feel about yeah, right. about the Sydney area and I'm sorry to all my Sydney friends but um yeah it's there's a kind of a real standoffishness or there was at the time between the Blue Mountains community that had made a definite choice to live there for the mm -hmm. most part um there were some you know old time families that had been there since sort of early settlement mm -hmm. um and had stayed in some of those heritage properties but um a lot of them were just refugees from the city, um, artistic folk that wanted to be somewhere a little bit more uh, close to nature. Yeah. The Geelong of... Uh, That's right. <laughs> which is where we are now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I totally get that. Uh, and then you, how long did you stay? How long were you there? So all your teen years or did you leave? Yeah, all my teen years I was there. And I should probably add that even though I was... I make it sound as if, you know, I was pouring my everything into music as a teenager. Um, it was actually like my worst subject at school. And, um, and I was just, I was all about the, the visual arts. So yeah, right. yeah I, I grew up really, really um, being very passionate about drawing and painting and sculpture. And that's really what I spent most of my time doing. So, um, you know, music at the time, it was... Um, it wasn't, I didn't have my sights set on, on spending my life doing it kind of thing. Uh, but the turning point came, um, when I had to apply for uni and I applied to all the visual arts courses, just, it was just obvious that that's what I was going to do. I got, you know, great sort of marks and everything in my, uh, HSC and, um, and then I decided I'd audition for the conservatorium as well. And I was just so chuffed that I got in. Yeah. <laughs> but I just kind of did this massive 
u-bend in life and just decided to go with it and without even really considering it and in retrospect I think it it's part of um, a general trend where I've always gone for what's a little bit harder so Mm -hmm. it's it's been it's something that's followed me around so it felt like a challenge and I just went with it what what was mum and dad's uh reaction to to that or is that just always been indicative of your personality they were happy to sort of support wherever I was willing to put my energy at yeah. that point. And I'd made up my mind um, when I was 17 that I was going to go traveling in Europe, in Ireland and Scotland and France. And so even though I got into the con, I took a year off and I went traveling with my best friend. We sort of had to work for eight, nine months and then took off and uh, we were you know due to just go for two months and come back and start studying and lo and behold after about two weeks in Ireland I was like oh my god I love this you know yeah and and I I woke my friend up in the middle of the night and said look you know I'm sorry but I've decided I'm gonna stay and she's like oh okay I'll stay too and so we we came back on the 365th day of a one-year plane ticket (laughs) having you know had the most amazing life-changing experience and um whereabouts were you most of your time into this visit um so i ended up spending most of the time uh, i guess in sligo um having spent a bit of time in leitrim working on an organic farm run by um rod alston who runs the sligo early music festival so he's a harpsichord player and i was able to play in his um, baroque ensemble uh, but once I got to Sligo, as of the very first night, fell in with the most amazing group of young sessioners. And there was just this run of about 10 different bars, including like the lock-ins, the town and county, you know, after yeah, yeah. 3 a.m. And uh, and so just spent, you know, a winter and a spring just playing until literally like I just went back through my diary last night to try and remember and it was literally like you know went to bed at four went to bed at six went to bed at 7 a.m you know got a four-hour night last night (laughs) how did you end up getting linked in with with these sessions as you call them uh it it was just fortuitous I mean we would have crossed paths eventually but there was just an awesome group of people around the same age as myself and it's the the poster behind you McChira so he ended up recording an album when we were there and um it, yeah it just everything fell into place like everyone was sort of between 18 and 25 raring to go yeah. you know and you were session ready tunes. too that's absolutely yeah. yeah yeah and did your friend play your friend that went uh no she was learning french and so she took off and spent her time in marseille living in the south of france so yeah so then you're on your own for a, yeah when i'm yeah. on we sort of had time actually living in uh, Ireland and France and I also traveled through Scotland before joining her for a while in Marseille and uh, at the very tail end of that year-long trip uh, we spent a week in Brittany um, in the west of France and I didn't know it at the time but it was I was literally walking you know about a couple of hundred meters away from my future husband's house (laughs) who I was to meet, you know, shortly after getting back to Australia. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny that those, those times when you're in that kind of 
you finished your high school and whether you're going in between uni or that gap year thing if if the spark happens and you get to feel that independence doing something for yourself your own way uh, that i think is the power then to, to inform the rest of your life uh, I, I i didn't have something with music but I, I moved away and i went to germany when i was like 19 it was only for a couple like six seven months but that sense of doing stuff your own way and not just going off the beaten path doing it doing something for yourself like that's still the essence of where i, I kind of want to be like that's the kind of i like, think back on the kind of the person i want to be at my heart it's like yeah i want to push to do something a little bit yeah. different i love hearing stories on people like here like when you said you found those sessions and you went straight into because you gave yourself into the moment and you went off and you met all these people up that that would have been life-changing really for the absolutely from then on yeah do you think we could have a tune yeah or a set of tunes and then we'll come back and i'll ask you more about okay all of that yeah great
I have not had that many goosebumps in <laughs> so long. Thank you so much. I haven't played it in that long. I was like, I hope I remember how, oh, <laughs> how they yeah. go. Oh, I was gonna get that in like that was like from the second you started playing my back lit up and then you know you're kind of waiting for it to die down and it didn't. i just it's so nice to be sitting in front of a real person and, and and listening to music being played it's very hard when we normally do these interviews over the last year to not we don't really hear the tunes until we get the file a day or two later uh, yeah. so that was just magic. post-covid yay oh, thank you <laughs> uh, so do you what 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 was what was that set that was so that was uh, one of the sets that I used to play in Sligo and have since, you know, it's always the one that I'll bring out at a session. I just love playing it. Uh, it's Castle Kelly, The Ivy Leaf. Um, the third one's a really famous one, but I can't remember its its name. And the last one's The Glass of Beer. Yeah, right. Oh, thank you. So you've come back to uh, Australia. You're, you're in the conservatorium in Sydney, is it? Uh, so are we backtracking now? For... Well, well, yeah, I'm just kind of thinking. So when we kind of the main area where it was, you've, you've had this time in Ireland and you found the, the Sligo crew and you you flew out 364 yeah. days or 300, <laughs> on the, the 356th day. Um, what what did you do? That, that's when you were starting your conservatorium? Um, yeah, so I had to re-audition for the con because I, I, you know, let my place slip. Oh, and... so you, can't, you couldn't defer or... Oh, I'd already taken a year off to go traveling, but then I took, you know, the extra, uh, a second year off of so that I could have a full year overseas. And uh, yeah, I remember how tricky it was in that second audition, going back to my Mozart concerto and struggling to to get the twiddles out of my, <laughs> my performance because they just wanted to creep in there all my my cuts and my rolls mm-hmm. and you know you have cuts and rolls in 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 classical repertoire like if you're playing it sort of historically informed uh style uh, but at the time I wasn't being um Mozart appropriate I was being Sligo appropriate <laughs> was there a um so there's the physicality of it but was there also a psychological perspective of it too? absolutely I I also came back with an Irish accent <laughs> lovely, <laughs> and I think both musically and you know vocally uh, I still part of me wanted to be in Ireland you know I had a, a hard time sort of readjusting um, because it had been such a, an amazing experience to spend a year overseas at 18 and 19 you know yeah so would what like what what would the the, the kind of personality bugbears that you you kind of because i'm sure it's hard so you've, you've you feel like you're you've got an independence and you're now finding this music that for want of a better word also has a sense of independence about it to then schooling which is not you need to kind of follow by rote and then the music itself is mm. much more on the page what was your um what were the kind of main areas you felt were causing those tensions um well as I sort of alluded to before, I'd kept um, folk, like fiddle music and classical music quite separate up until the point that I went to Ireland. And the thing that session playing really, really brought home to me was how to appropriate music, like how to make it my own and feel as if I had something to say through the music um, that 
was it was okay because it was unique to me and I you know can you explain that a little bit more well when you're uh, a, a lot of the um the way that you're taught to play classical music um at least at that time was that there was a right and a wrong way and the right way came from the page you know all the composer's indications generally made it clear enough that if you sight read well enough or if you were able to interpret music um, well enough from the page you would achieve a correct result and there was something about that philosophy that really grated with me because I think having already started to play fiddle tunes I knew what it was to sort of have learnt something by ear and to let it grow over time under the fingers Mm -hmm. and uh, that just really solidified when I was overseas just playing so much Um, I mean I didn't see one single dot while I was living in that it was just all acquired um, through the ears and um, and so going back to the conservatorium model uh, it took a long time to reconcile those two um, those two parts of my musical self, I think. And I was all, I always felt like a fringe dweller, you know, composing my own pieces to play in performance classes, whereas, ever, you know, most of the rest of the class had brought in Shostakovich or, you know, a Beethoven sonata or whatever. And, uh, and also questioning everything. So just, you know, if one teacher... I, you know, told me this is the correct way to do something. I guess I just allowed myself that little grain of doubt <laughs> that yeah. you know maybe you know maybe maybe not. And um, and that's you know that's part of my very contrarian argumentative side. But it over time has grown into my love of um, historically informed performance practice, which is you know deep diving into history to be able to find like find out a lot about a particular person period of time way instruments were made and to be able to piece together a more holistic view of why music may have sounded the way it sounded and it's a it surprisingly it comes up with a very modern music I mean we can't reproduce the music of the past and I sort of put folk music and fiddle tunes in in that same pool you know we're not we're not going back and playing a carol in the way that mm-hmm. that it would have sounded yeah. where we're playing a very modern version of historical music um, but that's okay and the more that you sort of find out about um, particular periods in in history um, the better informed you are to make your own choices uh, but it, it always, the more you know, the more you realize that you have yet to know. And so it just makes you more humble, or it should do anyway, the more that you sort of, uh, yeah, you just realize that you have to say, I don't know a lot of the time. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's interesting when I was doing a bit of um, back reading for today, and I come across that uh, that essence in, in, in you really, reading about you and you kind of, you're marrying of of these different kind of historic worlds and folk folk worlds at what point did did that start to click for you were, were, there, were there moments that stood out of you kind of you know what it's not as black and white as they say it is yeah um yeah it was uh when i was living in france so to sort of 
um, fast track through where we left off if, if we're we don't going go through chronological but after leaving Sydney Con I lived in France for 10 years and in the tail end of um, that decade because uh, it was very much a decade where I, I kept folk and classical very separate because in particularly in the French musical community it's there's not a crossover scene and if amongst the folkies if you're known to play classical music it was really damaging to your authenticity as like a, a folkie and uh and if you were known to play in sessions then you know your credibility as somebody that might teach in the conservatorium just you know dropped that yeah. <laughs> couple of rungs um so i kept yeah those worlds very separate um and but I was teaching in a music school at one stage called the Centre Breton d'Art Populaire, which is the the Breton musical centre for for popular arts. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't translate particularly well, uh, which gave me kind of um, blank slate, um, uh, allowed me to sort of teach in a in a manner that. That I was enthusiastic about and so I ended up running a whole heap of um, fiddle classes you know I had a Kaylee going and then I had these other classes on the side which was looking at historical tunes and a lot of baroque repertoire and for a lot of folk players it was the first time that they played Vivaldi for example mm. or looked at Corelli um, sonatas or um, some of this old Scottish repertoire that kind of felt like it didn't belong in either camp and um and around about that time there was a famous soloist from Chicago her name's Rachel Barton Pine um and she was touring Brittany and through a strange series of um circumstances she ended up coming in and tutoring my students and um she told me that she had met up with Alastair Fraser shortly before that point in time to workshop her her ornaments for the Brook Scottish Fantasy, which she was recording in Scotland. And to kind of help with that whole process, she'd been looking back through Scottish musical history and had come across all of these examples of Scottish Baroque repertoire. And I realised that I'd actually already been teaching that to my students. I just hadn't realised that it was a thing. I didn't realise that it was a body of repertoire and a thing that I could learn more about and a style that I could potentially appropriate, given that I was already, you know, I, I worked with Baroque ensembles in France and I was also playing Irish and Scottish mm -hmm. fiddle and I was already teaching this, you know, these 18th century Scottish tunes and uh, it really quickly grew out of that point in time where I was like oh my god I can be both at once you yeah, know yeah. I, like, I had no idea that there was a, a Scottish classical or baroque music like that that was completely new to me just coming to the interview today like so for for me and for anyone else who might not know like, to classify that kind of is it just what 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 signifies Scottish baroque music is it is, it, is that something that you can even Start can to you, can you describe, say? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, lots of people get a bit uneasy about using the word Scottish and Baroque in the same sort of phrase. Um, but in the same way that we've made French Baroque or English Baroque or Italian Baroque something that means something to today's audiences, uh, yeah, it's possible to talk about 
Scottish Baroque music. It, if you, if you have to explain yourself, it's just music that was played in Scotland of the Baroque period, which feels as if it was part of, I guess, a greater um, tendency in the musical world of Western Europe. Um, and it followed sort of um, art music fashions, um, many of which had been set in France and Italy. And Scotland in particular was influenced by Italian style um, Baroque compositions because there are a lot of Italian virtuosi who were coming and taking first fiddle spots in the Edinburgh right. Musical Society that was going to concerts. Be my question. Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, and uh, and the soloists that started touring Europe at the time, many of them were Italian. Um, they just had this amazing reputation because the training that they were getting from an early age allowed them to sort of attain these heights of musical virtuosity um, and. Uh, and it also, I guess it was also because of the Catholic um, connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but Scotland's unique, like people can assume that things happened at the same time in different countries in Europe historically, but it's not at all the case. And like when we talk about the Baroque period, we always put it in a box and we say it started at 1600 and finished at 1750 when Bach died. But of course, you know, it's not that clear cut. And certainly in Scotland, it really, things really took off in about um, 1730, in the 1730s. And you are still getting, you know, the remnants of that sort of Baroque blossoming in the 1780s when you had, musicians like Neil Gow, um, who, you know, had his own favourite Corelli sonata mm. and still played um, his themes and variations and and tune sets in a way that had been really profoundly influenced by that whole sort of continental Baroque um, repertoire or approach to music making. And it's it's always really interesting for me to be able to explain this to a lot of today's um, fiddle crowd because a lot of people, if they haven't got interested in sort of the historical side of folk fiddling or, or just folk anything, you can you can think that it's really separate to the you know the classical world, mm-hmm. and it's not until you actually start digging back through history that you realise it's a lot more blurry than, than, you know, a lot of people would be prepared to, to acknowledge. Like even, you know, when did violins first arrive in somewhere like Scotland? Well, you know, it's the violin like we know, or the Baroque violin like this one, you know, it was, it was in the 1600s, but it's not, it was after they had been invented in, in Italy and they sort Mm -hmm. of crept through Europe and so this idea that there there's been a sort of a, a Scottish or Irish folk fiddle scene that stretches back through time immemorial, yeah, it it can catch people out when they realise that that instrument didn't even exist mm. at that point in time. <laughs> I interviewed um, a fellow called Aidan Crossy a couple of weeks ago, and a, a quote that he quoted somebody else, I can't remember where he got it from, and he said about um, good listening makes good music. And that's been ringing in my head for the last couple of weeks since he said that because it's, it's brilliant, right? I really love that idea that if you're good, well, it's it it speaks for itself. Speaks for itself, yeah. Um, and then only because we've only 
been setting this up for a few days so i've only been able to kind of let myself go into a like right baroque and where does that sit in with um with scottish music which i don't, don't know a lot about anyway know a little bit more about folk and irish so i'm like right re-listening to different pieces with a mind to to maybe some of those influences and maybe because it's your videos too i'm starting to hear i can hear little things every now and again and go okay that's making sense why well, that would be a part of the the lineage mm-hmm. um you've just you pointed to the instrument behind behind you are, are you are we going to play that one today mm-hmm. yeah i think we could have a because yeah, no i want to ask you more of just i think this would be a good jumping off point into baroque and how you got in there and okay. more about it because i'm so clueless <laughs> no worries all right what am i gonna play <laughs> Before I get you to to play, maybe can you tell me a little bit about the instrument, just so, I've, in somewhat way, informed before I before I hear it. Uh, so this particular violin is a copy of a Baroque violin, um, probably a late seventeenth century or early eighteenth century model, and it was made by an Australian maker called Warren Nolan Fordham. Uh, in 2011 in Australia and here in Melbourne and one of the interesting things about it is that he actually makes these instruments with Australian timbers so it's made with king billy pine and uh, blackwood it's ridiculously good looking it is such a beautiful instrument yeah Yeah, it really is so what makes it different what makes it a baroque instrument um so it's a little lighter um and because of its construction um the neck of the violin is at a a lower angle than on a modern um violin so you get a little bit of a little bit less uh tension on the bridge here and you also have a shorter fingerboard you just don't go up quite so high as the modern repertoire demands of um a violinist and very importantly you use gut strings traditionally on a baroque violin um, sometimes you'll have a wound um, g which is the case here uh, if you have like a raw gut g uh, it's really quite thick and mm-hmm. um, it's a bit special to play on uh, and the often forgotten other part of the baroque instrument which is the bow um, you know it's curved more like a bow and arrow so it has it's shorter and very pointy at the tip this is like an early italian model and because it's curved in that way uh, when you push down on the strings it's like the the two ends of the stick of the bow naturally curl down a little Mm -hmm. and it relaxes the hair and it gives more grip on the gut strings so it kind of the brock bow and the gut strings go really well together and yeah, I've always, you know, I remember being in sessions in Sligo and seeing how people were holding their bow up the stick of the modern uh, modern bow. And I had already done that as well for playing my fiddle tunes. And, uh, and I, I remember wondering, you know, why it was knowing that it felt better, but not really knowing why it was. And you know, some people would say, oh, it's because you're so squished in a session, you know, you just mm-hmm. don't have... The space to kind of bow out but now that i've got used to playing a baroque instrument it seems pretty obvious to me that it's because a lot of the uh the tunes um 
were really designed, um, well, that, that dance tune culture um, came about at a time when people were using Baroque and transitional bows, which is like a, a classical bow. And, uh, and to get that same sort of light effect that you can get from the, the Baroque bow, that's why you hold a modern bow further up the yeah, stick. Okay. It, it takes a lot of the weight off your hand and it makes the bow a little bit more sprightly and um, uh, yeah, it gives a kind of a more ringing sound to your playing. Really? If you're holding it down the end, sort of classical style, uh, you get a lot more of that kind of silky sustain over the strings, which a lot of Scottish fiddlers really go for. Um, and certainly in the 19th century, that's how everyone played. They wanted this kind of this this eternal bow sound where you couldn't tell the difference mm -hmm. between an up and down, whereas the Baroque bow is based on the principles of breathing, so in and out breaths yeah, with your oh. down and up bows. <laughs> oh, I love that. And then you, it was um, the tune that you're about to play. Oh, okay. Yep. So this tune's called The Horseman's Port. I love this tune. Um, played at lots of different places and it's great in that it tells a story. So um, port is tune um, in Gaelic and in the beginning of the piece you've got a little theme and I imagine the horseman whistling as he's kind of um, walking out on his, his horse is walking out over the hills and then you hear the horse starting to trot and then to canter there's a bit of a battle scene that happens towards the end of the piece i reckon he flees the battle because the horse starts running really fast <laughs> at that point and then he just disappears over the the horizon at the end wow all right so yeah when you i i didn't say it officially but when you're tuning up a baroque instrument um you've probably never heard of you know, you probably just tune up with your piano, right? You tune equal tuning. But um, one of the fantastic things that you can get interested in when you get nerdy about early music is that, you know, early, like, piano tuning didn't used to exist. That's equal temperament, where everything is actually slightly out of tune. That is what equal temperament is. You slightly mistune everything so that everything fits into neat um, octaves where C you will be the same as C an octave up, yeah. etc. And uh and so you end up using early temperaments when you tune up a Baroque instrument where you you'll have perfect intervals. So if you hit a third in certain temperaments, you know, it'll actually be a sweet perfect third or a perfect fifth. Um and you don't get the compromise of I'm pointing to my piano, sorry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh of the the equal temperament uh and it you know it it's part of a set, like a color world that we've completely disregarded like mm -hmm. because we've embraced equal temperament it's kind of like going with primary colors at the printing press you know and, yeah. and being okay with like cartoon style you know you'll have six colors from now on and uh and when you get involved in this it's like actually here you know hear all the colors and let's mess them up and you can have that's such a nice way of thinking about it when you said that like straight away i went to my work brain the rgb and the cm now i can't remember the cmyk of colors which is exactly that you've got different worlds and opportunities 
by flipping one but if you live in one of those worlds if you're in print you're going to be cmyk yes that's the right right word mm -hmm. <laughs> show us how much i actually pay yeah. attention at work well i can i can talk uh, later if you Is want that... about sorry about tuning and and because i i'm really interested in modality in tunes as well which is again something that people don't talk a lot about um is that got to do with because I, I thought what i thought you were going to mention there was the a440 or a being 432 well yeah i'm in 415 sorry so it's like a semitone down like there's there and And what's the reason for that? Is that that just as well? Is that part of the same reasoning that you just were talking about with? Well, it's just that um, we keep on tuning things up and up and up. So um, tuning was non-standard at the time. If you had a town organ or you had lots of wind players in town, they can't really change their tuning. So mm -hmm. you would just, the strings would go with whoever couldn't change their tuning. Um, and so it was specific to each particular town. And then once musicians started moving around Europe more and needing to kind of like play in each other's orchestras, then they were like, well, can we like get this sorted, you know, because <laughs> this is really annoying. Uh, but it took until, you know, well into the 19th century to sort of standardize. But even then it was, it wasn't, I mean, it, it's, it still wasn't standardized. Like Melbourne pitch used to be 435 that was the Nelly Melba pitch yeah. um, and then it became 440 for a long time but now classical orchestras are at 442 and you know accordions are often 441 or sometimes 442 well, is, well. is, there, is there a rationale for the shift upwards it's just I think I, I think it's is indicative it of society no but <laughs> of society it's like this kind of you know we're not a relaxed people at the moment we're kind of we're going for bigness and virtuosity and sparkliness and showiness. Like that's kind of where people go, wow, you know, and I'll put my money on that. And I think that's why, you know, we, we keep on going in that direction. But wh when you get interested in the lower tonalities, you know, the, the feeling is of relaxation, like the strings become floppier, you know, the, the effect that it has psychologically, like it's, it can be really, um, yeah, very calming, just because the resonance is different. Yeah. If this may be way too nerdy, I'll ask it anyway. If I <laughs> wanted to go to a 415, for example, it, I'm sure this, I could just ask the internet, but is that something that I could just sit down with my with my tuner and some mats and just top in a different one on your tuner? You don't, yeah. have, you don't need any mats. You just get clear tune and then if you... Then it's just... A4 calibration and then you decide what you what you want to tune in well there's my evening <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's I mean it's it's really interesting and I mean it's only when you play with other people that you have to tune in in any way of course specific yeah. to yeah yeah well, I, I know with like it's it's funny in uh, my banjo at home is always in either e, e, e or F where the the kind of banjo I play is everywhere else is always going to be in G but I'm at home, so I can just tune it to... Mm -hmm. And so I love those lower registers. And I play out of G. Mm. I don't know if that's in the same realm, but... Anyhow. <laughs> I'm digging a hole that I won't be able to get out of. Yeah. Okay, so I don't think I actually ended up tuning it again. 
Shane, it's so great. <laughs> I thought I was going to lose my gallop in the end. <laughs> oh, I could feel myself like you kind of, because it is, it's on that edge of it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's totally on the edge. You're like, <laughs> that gets your, uh, that gets the heart rate going. <laughs> I love the um, the sound of the gut strings as well, having the, the bit more breathy or this like there's a there's a different timer going on there. It's so nice. There, it really is. I I often struggle to you know put words to it, but I, I often find that it brings out the woodiness of the violin more for some reason. Just I mean. I'm equally in love with the metallic strings um, for different reasons, but when I hear a Baroque violin, the thing that I know I'm loving is kind of, it feels more as if the wood is speaking to you directly. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I, I completely get that from a banjo perspective. Like, I love that. So I, I would normally have Nile gut because I'm not brave enough to get proper gut strings. Oh, but you that should. I will. I think I'm going to have to now. I'm like I was when you were there, I was like, "Yeah, definitely on internet." <laughs> it's going to be a busy night tonight. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> a lot of interneting. Um, what I feel like we probably did a disjustice to your time, your time back in Sydney before you went, and I think can you just fill me in? Is that when you started to learn about Baroque, or is, essentially what what had happened in that time that then sent you to France in the first place? Because we did miss that big chunk. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, yeah, I mean, funnily enough, I think I, I'd got the Baroque bug already just through the Suzuki um, repertoire. They, they've got quite a lot of Baroque pieces, and I remember just always liking them the best, Vivaldi, Concerto, and whatever. And I also think now that maybe playing fiddle music on the side had also planted the seeds of what was going to be a love of Baroque repertoire because of... It, it shares that kind of not really believing what's on the page or just, you know, taking it with a grain of um, a big pinch of salt and having to bring an element of improvisation and what you know about uh, the general style um, to be able to interpret the music um, uh, yourself. You can't get it all off the page. And at the Sydney Conservatorium at the time, there was actually no early music department. There were, it was the end of... I guess a period in Australia's history where um, there was a feeling of, uh, I guess, turning away from music of the past. Or I, I, I'm not quite clear on on uh, summing up in a nutshell what had happened throughout the whole of Australian musical history, but certainly it it wasn't um, something that featured on the conservatoriums. Um, you know, they, they didn't want to feature early music at the time. But the so. zeitgeist, more, more of a zeitgeist, using that word. But it was a, a, your contemporaries or people that you were, that also had an interest in it was, sorry, let me say that again. Essentially, was there a love for it within the community from people that you knew within your peers or was it just a conservatorium that was maybe just shifting their mm. sites at that time? Yeah, the, I mean, the what we call like the early music movement had already started in Europe in the 70s and or 60s and 70s and that had already produced Australian musicians who had gone and studied and then come back to Australia. So uh, Aaron Hilliard, who now directs um, the Pinch Gut um, Opera Company, he had just finished at the Conservatorium around the time that I was there. 
and um, the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra, who I now play with, um, they were in operation um, and it was certainly my, you know, dream to sort of one day uh, perform with them. Uh, but when I ended up wanting to get Baroque violin classes, I had to, I essentially finished my modern violin course, realized that what I wanted to do was Baroque <laughs> and got myself a couple of classes um, with one of the Baroque violinists that I knew in Sydney and had to wait until I'd sort of set up in France to actually go and I studied at a Paris conservatorium. But what people don't realize is that, um, you know, that you can travel quite long distances in, even in France, it being so small compared to Australia. So I was doing 10 hours of train for a one hour violin class. Wow. Yeah. And I'd have to get up, you know, at 4.30 in the morning, it was a four and a half hour trip from Brest, which is like the most extreme westernmost point of the French coast, um, catch the, the fast train into Paris, take my class and then come home. And I'm definitely doing the, <laughs> like I'm classing myself as an Australian here, I'm doing the conversion. Like it, in European terms, that's unheard of, right? Because like yeah, we, we yeah, do I 10 hours around. Un- right. like that's mad in European standards. <laughs> yeah, yeah I don't know. that's like, I don't know, Melbourne to Brisbane yeah. or if there was a fast train that existed, I don't know. Yeah, it was a bit. It was a bit unusual, but I figured that was that was what I needed to do to get my learning done at that stage. And so, then, who was it that you were you were traveling to to see? Yeah, it must have been a good teacher. <laughs> uh, his name was Patrick Bismuth, uh, and he yeah, he's one of France's best Baroque violinists, as far as I'm concerned. And what I really liked, apart from the fact that you know he he has a career in mainstream the mainstream Baroque community, I guess you could say, in France. But he also has sort of an alter an alter ego where he's learnt how to speak fluent um, Inuit, Eskimo. Yeah, okay. um, and he, he also plays sort of gypsy jazz and some non-classical styles, which influences how he approaches his, um, his Baroque music. So How, like I'm thinking... Timing wise, this would have been early stages of internet or even pre internet. How do you find someone like that that's 10 hours away when you're living in France? Uh, it was early internet. So, yeah, I could. I just found him, you know, through trial and error searching what was possible. But, you know, it was another audition process, you know, which involved actually going to Paris. And um, I had wondered whether I could just validate my Australian degree but mm-hmm. of course France being the beautiful country of red tape and administration <laughs> that it is uh, that whole process would have been as time consuming and costly as actually just redoing another degree so okay. I figured that was a better way to so you go. redid your degree well I I did just further Baroque studies like yeah. um, I didn't re-study modern violin and yeah, I was able to sort of go on and play with uh, period instrument org- orchestras um, in the area that I was living in and also fostered a really large and exciting folk um, career as well. So on the wall behind you, you've got some of the posters of uh, bands that I set up in Brittany. So you had Chew In, which was my Irish trio, um, and... 
uh, Dorna Dorn, which was a, tri- a duo that I had with Gwenaël Carlio, who's a, um, a Breton harpist and singer. Um, Baroque, which was a crazy mix of Baroque um, um, jazz and Oriental music that did a lot of composing for belly dance. And Audan, which was a seven-piece group, um, mostly centered around Breton, like traditional music, but we had two singers. One was a sort of Eastern European female singer, a very traditional Breton male singer, um, bass, drums and bass, and then two violins and a cello, and we were all full costume, full lighting, full yeah, stage yeah. props, like the big, the big sort of touring show, which was really, really fun. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm glad you mentioned the belly dancer thing because I for- totally forgot that you're a belly dancer teacher <laughs> as well, right? I where have does, been, yeah. Where does that fit in on the grand scheme of things? Is that because that's such another it's yeah it's mostly except for Barocca that that um sort of brought some of the dance element to the music i've mostly kept that area of my interest pretty separate um i guess at the time where i was i did i taught for a couple of years in a dance academy in france where i was teaching oriental dance belly dance and um the thing that i guess the effect that it had on my playing was that you know violin playing is pretty um off center you know as much as we try and sort of keep our posture really balanced so that we don't you know tear ourselves apart mm-hmm. uh you do end up developing a lot of different muscles on the left side to the right side but belly dancing is really balanced and so what you do on the right you generally do on the left and so i i found that you know on the friday when i was doing like a 10 hour teaching day of uh, dance I would sort of pull everything back into into alignment and then I'd go and gig over the weekend and everything would be You're completely sorry. left left of center you know I'd sort of get through the week and then and then it would all sort of start again so yeah I, I don't know it's it's been my and the music for belly dance like because I don't really know that much about it what what's typical music that it goes with um oh I mean Belly dancing is a bit like violin playing in that you you find it in lots of different cultures right. from you know from India all the way through the Middle East and through North Africa. Um, so it's hard to say that there's one specific style. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly lots of typical rhythms that accompany um, belly dancing. And yeah, at one stage um, I got really interested in trying to. I guess understand more on the violin what I was doing in dance and so um, I learn a lot about um, I guess what we would call modal music it's it's very much a used term in Brittany because Breton musicians say that Breton music is part of a modal music tradition and that doesn't really mean anything because uh, I mean modal can be interpreted in a lot of different ways to sort of boil it down to its essential message, it means that it's not tonal. So the, and what I've realized is that Irish and Scottish music to a large degree is modal as well. Okay. Um, and uh, it means that you use a lot of microtonal, um, uh, there are a lot of microtonal elements to how a melody comes together in Breton music. And 
um, and I did a lot of workshopping of Syrian and Turkish and Greek music and sort of explored those ideas further through those musical traditions and they're often you know more accompanying dance in the way that I was using yeah. uh, dance rhythms yeah the modal thing is it's, it's so interesting every time it gets mentioned it's one of those things where I'm trying to find an, an analogy I know I know I play tunes out of like G modal or and and the sounds that that that, that comes with that and that's as much as I kind of know, right? So I know enough to. You know uh, that you're not in G major or G minor, yeah. yeah. And when I hear it, I kind of I can maybe start recognizing it, and there's a deep love for it. Like I just, it's an attraction straight away. Well, yeah. That just sings with me. But that's all I know. So when I hear someone like you actually speak about it in terms, it's like, well, I feel lost, but I want to know. Yeah, well, it's it's something that isn't talked about enough, I think, in um, folk circles, because. I think there's a new tradition that's kind of grown out of um, the accompaniment of folk tunes that that we've heard since you know the 1960s, 1970s. Um, once we started putting guitars and pianos and bazookis and accordions, and you know, there's there's a whole new sort of sound world attached to folk tunes, and there are still do's and don'ts. They're kind of you know, it's not black and white, but it's kind of yeah, that sounds right or that doesn't sound mm-hmm. right. Um, but if you go back beyond that to when, to a time when the, there weren't those instruments, you know, accompanying tunes, well, the you you come to a point where you realise that certain um, tunes were written at a time when, quite simply, tonality hadn't even been exi- you yeah. know been invented as an idea, um, and so. The way that I've come to think about um, modality in this sort of repertoire, um, I found that it was better explained by this guy who taught me about Syrian music. And um, it really centers around the idea that there's a home note. So there's a, a note that is always the most important one, even if you feel as if you're kind of going between D and E and your tune, you know, D might be the one you like, mm-hmm. it's like, it doesn't really feel settled until you get to your home notes D. Um, but then outside of that, there are kind of, he described it as like uh, little clusters of, of notes, like, um, uh, or little sound clouds. So outside of your home note, you'll have places where the melody goes and it might, it might explore the sound of a, a cluster of a kind of a, um, an F sharp and an A and then the B will sometimes come in and and that kind of creates this this bit of a sound but it's in relation to the knowledge that somewhere in all of that mix you come back to a home note of D and so it's kind of there's there's not so much of this this logic of you go through the pieces is not um exploring uh harmony you know linear harmony where one moment is not complete in itself it's Mm -hmm. just a little stepping stone to the next moment and it all takes you through this logic until you get to the end it's more this idea that each step of your musical path is complete unto itself um and and it's more about exploring color and shape and form and texture uh without that kind of i guess the mathematics of musical harmony ticking away behind the melody yeah yeah 
it's that thing where I've, I know like what you're saying is making so much sense, but I, I don't know how to until I until I get the vocabulary music musically and actual vocabulary. I, I can't properly process it, but I'm loving hearing it. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, so with then how is how is the Irish music and, and Scottish music fitting in with in this time? Because if you if you're going towards the if you're learning and you're really trying to immerse yourself in the Baroque early music. Where is this fitting in with you when you're in France? Um, like, did, did you go back to Ireland? Uh, I did briefly. Um, I just went back to check in with all of the guys and say hi because it started to feel like such a long time. Yeah. Um, my daughter was, I think she was like three or four at the time and she had strawberry, strawberry blonde ringlets like natural and just the reactions of the the women on the street oh she's just so beautiful you know yeah. uh and yeah so i got to go back and I, I could play you a tune actually that comes from the session when i went back because a lot of the tunes that i'd sort of learned when i was in sligo I, i'd kept them you know in my my repertoire and so with my trio in in Brittany, we'd, um, workshop those tunes and because the guys that I was playing with Boren and guitar um they're really they're really into kind of I don't know making it a little bit jazzy sounding I guess and just kind of stretching out the musical ideas yeah and I'd gone with it because I like that too but then when I went back and I played some of those same tunes for the guys in Sligo they were like you know we play it quite a lot more traditional here you know like <laughs> I'd so already, you taken it so much further I'd, I'd, yeah I'd, I didn't realize that I'd kind of taken these steps outside of the Sligo tradition and you know not just one but perhaps multiple steps and wasn't, it wasn't until I went back that I realized and they're, they're really strong in their you know approach and they're like you know we don't need to change because we've got people from all over the world coming here to Sligo to play with us because what they want to hear is a Sligo sound. And, and I, I totally respect that and get that. Um, and, but it was just that funny moment of like, I, I continued to tell people that I'd sort of learnt tunes in Sligo, but hadn't realized, you know, what happens, oh my God, when you take them away and mm. you do stuff to them. <laughs> so yeah, are you happy to play that now? Yeah. No Great, worries. thank you.
have the best visual of the old boy sitting in the pub and that last bit just going, no shame. No. We don't need to. a little bit more traditional here. And this is the red egg where all the players go quiet. That was exactly it. <laughs> so the... Did did you play it that way when you played it in the pub that night? I think I actually did. The, while I was playing it, I was like, "Why did? Why would I have ever <laughs> done that?" But but yeah, the the reaction was as you imagine, just just kind of stunned silence, and you know that that's not Irish. Shane, yeah. you know, like, I want to know what, 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 what what was the next set after that? Can you remember? Uh, <laughs> like probably back to Upslagger, you know. Yeah. <laughs> right, Maggie. we need to sort this place back in and put some manners on this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So before we had that piece, we I am. Um, oh, do you know what the the names of the tunes and that's it? Oh yeah, so um, it's Hamlin, and then the second piece is called the Juggler, and it's a uh, Ron Harbron Harbron um, piece, which is actually meant for a, a concertina, and the middle section is just totally unplayable for the the fiddle. So I rewrote the middle section, which is the bit that sounds a bit jazzy, and yeah. then you know. Has an instrumental break in. <laughs> I love Tamlin too. That's such a such a great tune. I thought that. Yeah, it's oh, a cracker. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, what we had been speaking about was being the being known as the Australian violinist, and then your decision to come back to Australia. Um, can you take me through through that? So that was what I think I was reading on your website, or, or maybe someone had written about you. Uh, yeah, I mean, in in France. Um, I was known as the Australian violinist. Um, ironically, there were actually three of us in the small area where I was living. But you were the one. Well, no, I wouldn't. <laughs> I, w- I wouldn't say that. There were there on their were, terms. On their terms. Yeah, and uh, and one of them, one of them was born in uh, Melbourne, and the other was born in Bendigo, which is where I was born, which was completely crazy. The yeah. two Bendigo violinists, and when I left. Chew and my trio, she actually took my place. So, oh, wow. you know, they had yeah, two yeah. Aussie violinists, one after the other. Um, but, but being yeah. the Aussie violinist, was that something that graded on you? Was it something that you you used to your advantage? Like, what, how did that sit? Because I can imagine it's double-edged sword. Yeah, I think, um, I think I used it when it was to my advantage. And when it wasn't, I just kept that side, you know, um, hidden. But mostly for you know publicity purposes it it was to my advantage and I'm just lucky that you know Australia has a kind of a a bit of a zing amongst French audiences um, and exoticism which I guess French people find they have here in Australia as well so um, yeah I think their surprise was generally that you know I, I spoke good French and I even spoke some Breton when I was living there and uh, you know, was really very much an adoptive um, child of, of yeah. Brittany during those 10 years. If I pushed you, what would you say that they like about Australians? Like, what, I know they're going to be stereotypes, but what, uh, what, what, what do they go, yeah, the Australians are? They don't know, which I think is why it's, <laughs> it's, it's alluring. Like, when I first went to Brittany when I was 18, like, I literally had, I never forget it, I went into a secondhand shop and before I left, the woman asked if she could touch my arm. And it was because she wanted to say that she had touched an Australian. Wow. <laughs> I mean, you know, Brittany's uh, pretty, you know, it's not on the beaten track, but still it stayed with me. Mm. 
Um, it only uh, happened the once, right? <laughs> just the <laughs> <Yeah>. once. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I mean, in terms of, you know, being a musician, you use whatever you've got up your sleeve to try and make whatever you're doing exciting for local audiences. And generally it was to my advantage to say that I was, um, an Australian violinist. Mm -hmm. Um, and then inversely, when I made the choice to come back to Australia, I, you know, I was able to, um, use to my advantage the fact that I had these 10 years experience in Europe and specifically in France, which um, given that I made the decision coming back that, um, you know, I'd, I'd sat on that sort of, I always think of it as sitting on the fence, like with one foot in the front, in the folk camp and the other in the classical camp. Mm -hmm. And I'd kind of, I guess I'd had a stronger foot in the folk camp when I was living in, in France. And when I came back, I decided I was going to jump the fence yeah. <laughs> And so I, yeah, I transitioned into being mostly a Baroque violinist uh, and got lots of lucky breaks, like playing with the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra, um, the Melbourne Baroque, Adelaide Baroque, um, doing various sort of touring roles with different large organisations and then set up my own ensemble, Evergreen Ensemble. And... Um, uh, yeah, I've been, there are lots of opportunities that have sort of been available to me here that I don't think I would have had, had I stayed in France. Like France is particular in that, um, it doesn't have, it doesn't allow people the same flexibility to move around career wise or even identity wise. Um, and you know, sometimes that, that has a positive, um, effect on society, but um, I guess, uh, for a musician, it's interesting in Australia, the fact that you can, if you want to, you can reinvent yourself. And, um, yeah, I don't think that I would be at this point in my career had I stayed in France. Be where you are. So the, uh, I, I want to ask you about, um, Evergreen Ensemble, I want to ask you about your, um, is it PhD you're doing at the moment? Yeah. So yeah. what's the PhD about? Uh, so the PhD is on the historically informed performance practice of Scottish Australian music manuscripts. Okay, start at the start. <laughs> <laughs> so um, what, what, where are you in that process and what are you looking at? Um, well, if, if, I, if I take a mini step backwards, I actually just finished a master's in the modal aspects of Scottish like 18th century Scottish music. So yeah. I kind of, I came out of Brittany still wanting to sort of explore that modal um, aspect around Scottish repertoire. And then um, while I was getting interested in that, I guess this this thought just started niggling at me, like how much of this Scottish stuff actually came out to Australia? Like now that I'm here and being really excited about being back in Australia and playing music, how does all of how does my passion for you know um 18th century folk music that's not really a, a term but 18th century music from Ireland and Scotland how does that fit in with Australia and um my um I, I guess a, again a lucky break I got a fellowship for the National Library in uh, Canberra the National Library of Australia in conjunction with the National Folk Festival mm -hmm. and they just gave me free run of the behind the scenes of the library wow. for four weeks um, where I just got to dig through all of their old dusty shelves that no one ever, ever goes yeah. to. And looks, uh, uh, I was looking for all of the 
all examples of Scottish music, basically, of specifically the old stuff. But um, and yeah, I, I mean that turned into two ABC Classics recordings, which was again huge, um, amazing, you know, opportunity. Um, so the first one was looking at that uh, fellowship repertoire, and the second was a collaboration with some. Uh, early musicians from Sydney and two from Glasgow and a music researcher from Glasgow. So it was a, a big sort of team, um, uh, which was, yeah, I mean, two projects like that in yeah. the same year with the fellowship and the tours that go with it. Like it was just the most crazy, insane. Are those recordings year. still available? Can you yeah, 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 yeah. Where, where is a good place to grab that? I mean, they're... ABC wherever, shop? yeah, yeah I mean, ABC shops don't really exist anywhere, I don't think, but certainly wherever you find ABC recordings, so online um, or through the Evergreen Ensemble website, and okay. yeah, um, and it's grown into the, the the perfect timing for COVID. I, you know, really got started with the PhD, which was looking at um, these early Scottish Australian music manuscripts, and I've decided recently to just look at how to how to play them, mm-hmm. which is, I guess, the best thing that I think I can bring to those studies. Um, so it's not how would I play them, but looking at historically, what were the musical influences of, I've picked three collections. Um, so one in Tasmania and one in Victoria and another um, from sort of Queensland, New mm-hmm. South Wales area. So it's going to be really exciting, I think, for Australia's so folk fiddle community and other treble instrument players who I guess, you know, always have that thing of what's Australian folk music, you know, what what does it mean for me as a sort of a folk player in an Australian context? Or if you're on the classical side of things, you know, early music player to actually realise that there is, you know, eighteenth century and nineteenth century repertoire that is specific to Australia. Um what in your thinking about this? What why do you think a lot of that was shelved? Um, well, I don't know whether I would say it was shelved, but something that's becoming really clear to me as I have to do all this reading in Australian history and Australian musical history is that we've been a very forward-looking nation not in the sense that we've been incredibly progressive and, you know, charging forward with purpose, mm. but more in the sense that we've not looked backwards a hell of yeah. a lot. And when you read about the history of places like Tasmania, which have has such a strong, uh, like, convict start to mm. colonisation, um, certainly the first, you know, 50 to 80 years of colonisation was just very tough for most people um, living in that context. And so I think there were, it took a couple of generations to just even take stock of what had happened and where people were socially and community wise and to have a think about where they wanted to sort of head on from there. Mm-hmm. And then World War One happened and then World War Two, yeah. and, and then the 20th century and it kind of, I don't know, there's been a, a momentum which hasn't really asked Australians to sit down and, and again take stock. But 
I don't know about you, I kind of get the sense that it's happening at the moment. There's just, compared to when I was at school, there's just so much more reflection on Indigenous um, culture and um, and trying to break apart some of the misconceptions about yeah. Australian history. Like it's, there's still so much work to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, but you got to take those steps and make those mistakes and, you know, say those faux pas and whatever and just get through it, you know, get through it to come to something on the other side. Yeah, completely. So, yeah, I, really what these studies in old Scottish Australian manuscripts is the most important thing has actually been the self-reflection and what it's brought to my own family and friends and the people that I talk to about um, what it's taught me about Australia and being Australian. Yeah. Like it, it doesn't really matter that it's music. It's, it's come back to that same sort of basic yeah. conclusion. I, I'm fascinated about what we're speaking about here, about what had the music come and then what happened to it afterwards. And I think I mentioned to you before that, I really like American old time music, which a lot of it comes from the kind of Scotch Irish, right? Mm. And that that seems to be a lot more prevalent in the states. I know that the the histories are very different, and it's probably, but a lot of the music is dated in the same. Wouldn't it, am I right in thinking that a lot of those? Well, no. When the Scotch Irish went to, that would have been the seventeenth. It's like the, there are, there were waves of immigration that were, you know, that were coupled. Um, going to America or coming down to Australia, but there had been previous waves, which is part of why the the sort of the cultural rollout didn't happen the same in in both countries. And yeah, the fact that Australia, uh, you know, America's during the nineteenth century was still being you know involved with slavery and was uh, you know the um conflicts between states that just mm-hmm. never happened in Australia. Yeah. Australia hasn't had an internal war and we we did have, you know, forms of slavery. I mean, really the the convict scheme was pretty close to <laughs> we didn't call it slavery, but it was it was pretty close to 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 what slavery actually means. Um and as we've discovered recently, there were forms of Aboriginal slavery as well. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so. Th- so that, that, is it then that the music wasn't, it didn't play a role in unifying as much? It was, if you, and then going back to your point before about having this forward looking mentality of kind of like, well, that's, we need to get away from. Hmm. I, I don't, like, obviously, I'm not looking for an answer. It's just something that's, it's a, it's, yeah. I, I, yeah, I don't I have a ready-made answer. I'm still mm. sort of working my way through um, Australian music history, trying to piece together what was running through some of these musicians' minds as they were playing. Um, but yeah, that sense, I mean, I think uh, what we don't realise these days is just how much um, people felt as if they were in an outpost of the British colony like Mm -hmm. it really felt like a little chunk of Britain um to give an example one of the musicians I'm looking at um while he was in Rockhampton his wife did uh piano exams in the Rockhampton area and it was 
an examiner from London who came out because it was the London Musical Society Examination yeah. Board. And so it was it was just, you know, it was like that 10-hour train trip for me to get to Paris. It was just, it took 10 months, <laughs> to, you know, yeah. to get here to examine. And then, yeah, it was, it was this strange kind of feeling of empire. Um, yeah. And we've really lost that now. Like it, my kids, you know, I have to tell them that, there was this time in history when blah blah the queen, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, Someone pulled and... <laughs> a rock, a stone from a rock, and you know, you know. yeah, it's um, so. And, and your your the musical side of what you're looking at, how it's going to represent, or how you're going to how you're going to represent, how you're going to play it. Do you have a mind's eye of what that might be at the end? Like, are you going to tour it? Are you going to record? Uh, well, the two ABC albums they're actually part of uh, what I'm looking at because a lot of the repertoire of those two albums was this 19th century Scottish Australian collections uh, played on period instruments. So it was already, you know, a first step towards what I'm I'm sort of now deep diving into. Um, the the subsequent recordings, hopefully, it'll come just with a more understanding of the context. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I. The thing that struck me before I started this was that when people would get their hands on some of these collections, you know, they look like they're still recognizable, you know, tunes from sessions that you might come across today in Melbourne or Sydney, you know, their, um, their session repertoire. And so if you're a session player, well, then you'll probably play it in however you play your kind of your session tunes these days. Um, but if you're interested in kind of early 19th century um, uh, more classical repertoire played on period instruments like square pianos, um, violins which have been set up with a classical bow, gut strings, um, no chin rest and shoulder rest, mm-hmm. uh, the, the music sounds quite different. You know, like it, it might be subtle to the untrained ear, but when you're actually listening for certain things, ornamentation, character, um, bowing styles, um, the differences are there. And so it, it's quite, um, I, I'm hoping that I'm in a unique position to be able to try and find some middle ground between yeah. what I know it's of exciting. both styles. Yeah. Yeah. Look yeah. That. I'll yeah. See what it is. Uh, the other thing too is you, you teach as well, right? Yeah. So is that them um, to, Find out more about you. You have a website that has everything on it, right? Yep. yep. Where, 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 where should I send people? Um, I guess shanelestido.com. I'll <laughs> make sure I've got the links for that in the show notes underneath. Okay. The I might just go and make sure that it's up to date once, <laughs> once you <laughs> yeah, finish yeah, yeah. talking. <laughs> and then the other big thing that's because we are luckily, like we're in the start of February right now and COVID is a, a much smaller yeah, concern <laughs> that it used to be. So the other thing, we are now in the start of February and in Australia we are lucky because COVID is a lot less concerning than it was during the uh, last year. So we are really lucky in that regard. And you're, you're teaching face-to-face at Boxwood in two weeks or so, is that right? Yep, fingers crossed. So... It will happen. Yes, it will happen. well, yeah. It's very exciting. Um, 19th through the 21st of Feb and... Yeah, we sort of take over uh, Queenscliff for a couple of days with 
lots and lots of day workshops and a Saturday night concert, um, lots and lots of sessions and collaborations between um, fiddles, flutes, harps, um, and other instruments as well. But certainly the teachers will be uh, mostly concentrating on those um, those areas. I've, I'm, I'm gone this year. What, what are you teaching this year? Um, heaps of stuff, actually. Uh, we've just been chatting with Andy uh, Rigby on harp, and we're going to do one workshop which is exploring how to ornament slow airs. So when you want to play something delicious and beautiful and slow and you've got like five notes on the page and you're yeah. like, what do I do with them? Uh, so we'll be, we'll be working, working our way through some of those. And, um, also some open tuning, uh, uh, pieces. So like drop D and AAE and GDGD tunings, um, and how that relates to the harp because the harp, uh, you know, if we go back to sort of the Claire Sark, the Claire Sark, um, uh, harps of old with the the metal strings um, there was a very particular way of playing that was tied to the very ringing nature of the instrument um, and it'll have correspondences with our open tuning fiddle tunes so uh, we're doing that and uh, we'll have lots of uh, Irish music and song and banjo happening with the other tutors as well. Yeah, which many have been on the podcast. So I know uh, Maggie Carthy has been, she's been on before. Uh, Mochin's been on with us. Afric's been on with us. Yeah. Sarah's been on with us. So yeah. I'm, I'm chomping at the bit. Um, yeah. So I reckon you should go and get uh, registered or get tickets. I'll probably do it. Absolutely. A shout out at the end you got to, yeah, got to jump in because. With COVID, we've kept the numbers low. So, yeah, first in, best rest. Perfect. Um, I'll make sure I have all the links for you, Shane, to make sure that anyone that wants to find out more about you or by your music has the right place to go. Um, thank you so much for this afternoon. I was an absolute blast. No do you, worries. Do you think we can go out on one last tune or a set of yeah, tunes? Yeah, I'll get, I'll get my violin de more yes. out. Yes. <laughs> that's dangerous because that could have led us into another 15 yeah, minute chunk so perfect like, one oh, to go out on I tell you about it <laughs> so just play it whenever you're ready thank you so much <laughs>
Shane Lestido. Incredible. Um, I'm so <laughs> I'm so glad that Shane played the violin demora at the end. Uh, I I was I'm totally out of practice in doing face to face interviews. Uh, we met each other. I thought early in the afternoon. I thought we had heaps of time and arranged to have dinner with uh, my family and another family, and got to the end of this and looked at my like after doing a setup and then packed down everything looked at this and i was already an hour late and i'm so happy that the violin de more happened at the end because i i just adore that sound it is so so nice so i knew i had no choice but to leave i couldn't ask any more questions um shane thank you so much for that as you could tell on the day i enjoyed every second of it and thank you for uh that taking me through some of the basics i hope it wasn't too basic for you uh, as i mentioned at the top of the episode from the 19th to the 21st of february so two weeks time in uh, queenscliff the boxwood festival all the details on boxwood.org uh, also check out their facebook pages of um, boxwood australia page on facebook go over there um i did say at the start we really do need your support to keep the podcast going uh you know it's it's hard not to repeat it the same way each week it's um in the end of the day i'm kind of i'm begging for 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 support for the work that we do um i think about it during the week i'm like how do i appeal to to more people to to actually chip in because as much as it's a, a labor of love, uh, we like the bills need to get paid too. <laughs> and, uh, I, we can't do that unless some more listeners come on board and and uh, and support us. I would hope that these six seven hours a month more sometimes uh, are worth the. Um, well, it's only really the price of a a pint or a cup of coffee or I don't know. There's many things that probably come in under a tenner or whatever it would come out to two two bucks a week or whatever that is in the local currency anyhow we think that's um a pretty fair price if you want to chip in but you think the price is too high by all means head over to patreon.com forward slash balarney pilgrims and just type in a lower number 20 cents an episode 50 cents when we say every bit helps it really really does um i lot i thinking is there something else to go out on um nah just Grab tickets for Boxwood. I'm chuffed. I'm gonna go. I'm, I'm gonna be there for the entire weekend this year. Um, I'm gonna be there with my fiddle, and I'm gonna bring the five string banjo because you know you never know. Someone might actually want to <laughs> do an old time tune or something. There's a there's a couple of song um, um, workshops. So I think there was some songs looking at Celtic Irish song and looking at American folk song. So bloody looking forward to it if you um recognize my voice down there please come and say hello i'd love to have a chat um if not i will catch you next week maybe have don back maybe not we'll uh we'll see all right all the best good luck bye bye This project is supported by the City of Greater Geelong through its COVID-19 Arts, Culture and Heritage Recovery Grants Programme. Anya bye ya. Hup.